and welcome wherever you are listening from. This is the 212 Podcast, where we talk to the people from all walks of life, from the arts and entertainment industry. If you like what you hear, please give us a like and subscribe. Our next guest on the podcast is part of Punk Royalty, hailing from Manchester. He was part of the raw and underground scene that was synonymous with Manchester during that period. He is a co-founder of the band The Buzzcocks, and with him taking the reins as the lead singer... As is his versatility, the only instrument he hasn't played in the band is now drums. This year is a big year of massive gigs, partnering with other legends of the game, having taken the hiatus we all took over the past few years. Please welcome to the podcast, Steve Diggle from The Buzzcocks. How are you and where are you today? I'm good, thanks. I'm in London. I'm at home in my house right now. So, yeah, it's about nine o'clock or quarter past nine in the morning here. So, yeah, London at home, really. Yeah, nice. I just the I guess the, the the part that I wanted to touch upon. Obviously, you're in London now, but what yeah. on God's green earth was it like between your teen years growing up in Manchester in that music scene that you had kind of on tap? It was really exciting, actually. I mean, we kind of kickstarted the Manchester scene, the Manchester punk scene, because there was there was no scene before that. We brought the Sex Pistols to Manchester who were relatively unknown also, but all the journalists came down to review the Sex Pistols. All the journalists from London came to Manchester. And lo and behold, they were surprised when we opened up for the Sex Pistols. So we kind of got reviewed in the papers, and also it kind of put Manchester on the map. So all of a sudden, Manchester came alive as well, and it started to become exciting. <laughs> So if, the, if, the, if there wasn't kind of that scene, you know, who were you listening to growing up? Well, at the time, there's a few uh, progressive bands at the time, and they kind of, bands like, yes, they'd kind of like gone full circle. But before that, I grew up with all the 60s bands, all the classics, you know, the Beatles, Stones, Who, Kinks, all them things, Bob Dylan. Also, I listened to a lot of soul music and ska and stuff, because I used to have the scooters. You'll know about them coming from Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to get into that at some point in the uh, the episode, for sure. Who gave you your first guitar? Do you remember? Yeah, I bought it myself. It was £6. It was um, it was like a cheap Spanish guitar. Really, it should have just been hung on the wall, you know. And um, Anyway, when I started playing it, every time I put it in tune, played a chord, it went out of tune. So... I learned to play Beethoven's Ninth on one string and a bit on the other one. <laughs> but from that, I started doing little riffs and motifs on like two strings and things, which, looking back years later with hindsight, was the precursor to a lot of the simple buzzcock riffs we played, you know. So if I started on an expensive guitar, I would be playing the chords and nothing. But with this guitar, I just used to... Uh, sort of jam on two strings and bits and pieces here, which gave the style for doing them little guitar motifs along with Buzzcock stuff. I didn't know that at the time, but it just shows you in the face of adversity, you know. And and Christ, if you can get a $6 guitar now, that would be nice. Well, yeah, it's, it's what you do with it. You know, I, I learned a technique on that thing uh, because... That was one of the things that only allowed me to do, if you show me. <laughs> so there's always, you know, you don't always have to be the best. It's more the ingenuity of things, you know. You mentioned that the, the kind of that Spanish, you know, that that 
style guitar. Did you did you enjoy that? I guess the, the those extensive riffs that they do, where it's just constant movement on the guitar, and you know those those three three string guitars. Did you did you like or grow to like any of that stuff because you well, it, are a guitarist? Yeah, but this this was just a metal one. You know, we had uh, metal strings. It was cheap. It wasn't like a, a classical guitar. But I did get one of those a little while after. And I learned a bit of classical guitar, doing arpeggios and all that kind of stuff. Developed a nice right hand. You had to kind of, they told you to pretend you've got an apple in your right hand. So you kind of arch your hand and then you can do that finger picking. I was, I've not done it for years though, but um, yeah, that was a different thing. But I did learn a bit of classical guitar for a while. And say that this this other one was so cheap. It had metal strings, and uh, but because it, of its limitations, that's where they came up with those riffs. All learned the style of it. You know, that was a different ball game. That one, that that first did, cheap one. Did you play? Did you play someone else's guitar first to know that is what you wanted to do, or you just were given it and or bought it, and then you just started playing yourself? Yeah, I think I bought and some. I actually bought it, started messing, playing with it a little bit, and then I had three scooters at the time, so I used to go on them, you know. And then when I stopped riding the scooters, I thought I'm more, you know, resigned to the guitar now. So that's when I started playing it a bit more. But I'd play a few other people's guitars in the neighbourhood as well, you know. They're the good ones. Eventually I got a good one, but uh, yeah, I played a couple of other people's guitars. Electric guitars and acoustic. I thought, well, I better get a good guitar after this one. <laughs> now, now yeah. I'm involved in it. What type of music was playing in in your household or amongst your 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 friends to get you into it? Oh, it's all kinds, really. I mean, my dad used to play Johnny Cash live in Folsom Prison and stuff like that. Of course, and um, you know, I was by not you know, I was a child of that the the sort. Of Classic early 60s, so I had Beatles, Stones, Who and Kinks albums and stuff like that. All that kind of classic 60s stuff, you know. That's what I first started by, back in the early 60s, you know. So that's what I was listening to. And lots of other, you know, and a lot of soul music and everything that come around, you know. But early on, the albums are quite expensive, so you can only buy one here and there. But that's what I was listening to at the time. A lot of that 60s stuff, really. Because that's what was happening in, like, 63 and 62, 64, 5. So I was 10 years old in 65. So, you know, I hit that kind, all that kind of scene at the right age for all that, really. So all that had a big influence on me, really, you know, like Swing in London, Carnaby Street, that kind of thing. I had a big influence, you know. Were you listening to the kind of UK soul or the American soul? What kind of bands were you listening to with that? Well, I was I was listening to like um, you know Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, and all that, and all the Motown stuff, you know, Smokey Robinson, all those kind of things, Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, all that, you know, because that was all kind of happening in the sixties, mid sixties, things like that. And a bit later on, I got into Scar and stuff, all the things on the Trojan album, you know. Stuff like Long Shot Kick the Bucket and Judge Dread and stuff like that. That was Scar stuff about. I was listening to a lot of that as well. 
I got into Led Zeppelin for a bit then. <laughs> Some of that soul music, if you played it today, it could it could be relevant today. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it still sounds as good because there was all pretty much good songs along. So they do sound relevant today, you know. And um, there was always a good tune or a song. So that's another reason they last, really. So, so what do you think? Yeah. Um, what do you think in particular with Manchester? What do you think was happening at the time in Manchester that produced so many good bands? Do you think it was the kind of grunginess of of the venues that helped? Well, the landscape was barren before we kind of started. Really, um, there was nothing really happening, and um, like I say, we opened up to the Sex Pistols, and um, it put Manchester on the map, but also it brought the town alive. You know. Suddenly, a few clubs started opening and playing this punk rock music. And we was like at the forefront of that, you know. So the the town came alive. And a lot of people that went on to form bands, like The Fall and people like that, Joy Division, they'd they'd seen the buzz, was inspired by the buzzcocks. And eventually, they started forming bands, you know. And a kind of Manchester scene developed, really. You know, that must be that must be quite complimentary to you. Oh, absolutely! We was like the uh, you know the forerunners of it all, the instigators, the vanguard. You know, like I say it, suddenly the town came alive via us. It's like we've got our own punk band, a Manchester band, not from London, the Buscocks, right here in our own town. So that kind of kickstarted things off, really. You know, and inspired other bands. And there was a place called Rafters, Band on the Wall. Two places started opening clubs and, and playing music and eventually putting bands on and stuff. So our scene started to develop, yeah. But we kind of started it, really, yeah. Not consciously, <laughs> but it just sort of happened, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we was just getting the buzzcocks together in Manchester, but like I say, there was nothing really happening. So a scene quickly developed, you know. Do you think people, that people in Manchester were more interested in, in the football rather than the music? Oh, no. I mean, when this punk thing came, it, it, like I said, the town became alive and people got excited about it. And these different clubs had opened or started playing punk rock type things. And so a lot of people started going to all these clubs and getting excited about there was a Manchester punk scene, you know. Suddenly the town had something, you know, to relate to or people have something to relate to in Manchester and then that inspired a lot of other bands and that's been the continuation up to this day you know it's like we formed then you had the fall joy division then stone roses oasis you know it's a one generation after another seems to have happened since since then you know what, what clubs can you remember that closed that have since closed down that were the kind of the, the ones that you really just felt the noise in well, I used to go to this place called Rafters a lot. It was on Oxford Road, and that was quite popular. It was open every night. And they they would put bands on every night, really, and the, the bar and the whole area was quite busy, you know. People would meet there and talk about things, uh, you know, exchange ideas about what this punk rock thing was, you know. Because there, there was question in their lives. Yeah, you kind of had to rethink your whole consciousness about what this music was doing to you. It wasn't simply just entertainment. 
stabbing your feet. Somehow, for some reason, it kind of, like I say, it makes you have to rethink how this music affects you. It had a bit of an assault on the senses at the time, you know. It might not seem like it now, but at the time, it was like shockingly new, you know. So people would discuss that in these clubs and different things, you know, their political situation and uh, the art kind of thing. And the music, you know, people were like debate with each other. They, they weren't just like an audience that bought a record and um, just tapped the foot and wanted to be entertained. So this, there was a lot of that going on. Then there's a, a big place called Electric Circus, which is a rundown cinema. And they had a lot of bands on there, you know. That was like a, a bigger place, you know. But that became known for a while, very popular, you know, because they had like a biggish stage and a lot of bands played there, including the Sex Pistols and us and The Clash. Uh, a lot of other different bands started going. And I'm assuming Sorry? that you went you went there before you played there as well. Did you did you end up getting to play there and was that kind of like a couple of days before because it's it kind of opened as we were just start as we were as things were starting to you know kick off you know the scenes as it's started moving it kind of opened really early on you know but it wasn't open before the punk scene if you see what I mean that electric circle was opened because of the punk scene so I might have went there like the week before to check the first week to check it out but it wasn't a regular thing until punk, you know. And then it housed the uh, the Sex Pistols Anarchy Tour went there and uh, the Clash White Riot Tour went there, you know. And also we played there, being local. I think we did it a couple of times over the time, yeah. So there's all them places. So it was quite an exciting time all round, really, you know. Very exciting, you know. It, it, sounded, so. it sounded from like what I've read from previous interviews that you've had, it was, it was kind of all about the music for you. Money never even came into it. You'd, you'd kind of do it for free if, if you could. Is that, is that true? Well, in the early days, you're just doing it to play a gig, you know. Nobody thought about having a career or money. In them really early days, back in 76, it was just a matter of playing a few shows. I think we got paid a bit of money here and there, but it, I'm not sure where I got a little bit, but he's probably on petrol or something. But it didn't matter that it was it was the intent. It was like the excitement of playing because we didn't know how long it was going to last when we started. We we never planned anything with it, you know. It was all for the moment. So it didn't matter whether he got paid or not. I mean, it was like we're doing this because we want to do it. It's exciting and it's here and now. But of course, eventually we did get paid after a while. But I mean, the early ones, no, you know, it wasn't about making, it was about making these punk rock statements, really, or making this music initially. So no artist thinks about the music, uh, money at the beginning, you know. If you start thinking about the money at the beginning, then you're not on the right track, really. You can't do art just to make money. You've got to make the art and then the money will come later, I think, you know. Do you remember the first first song you wrote? Yeah. Actually, I wrote a song called Fire Down Below on a cassette and sent it to the local radio stations and never heard back from them. <laughs> Some competition. <laughs> but for Buzzcocks, my first song was Fast Cars, 
I actually wrote it before I met but the other Buscott's actually. But that's the first track on the first album, um, you know, uh, Music in a Different Kitchen. And Fast Cars are my first song for Buscock's, you know. And then there was a, some other song there as well, Autonomy and things like that. So those were all my early ones for Buscock's. I'm sure before I met the other Buscock's, I'd written some other songs somewhere, but never really used them, you know. I was kind of still learning to write, really, in a way. Is there any yeah, way that we're the, ever going to hear that other song that got rejected? <laughs> Are you ever going to release it? <laughs> do you know, <laughs> I can't remember how it goes. It was just one of local radio songwriting competitions, mm. you know. So I sent it in and never heard a thing. Of course, years later, when we were doing all the Top of the Pops and getting played on all national radio, that local radio station selling radios as Kings of Manchester. <laughs> and I kind of felt like saying to them, Listen, I sent a cassette in here years ago. <laughs> you love us now, but I never got a reply from that song I sent in. <laughs> Chuck a rock through their window. Hey. Well, they welcomed us back as Kings of Manchester a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we, we went in there, we, you know, when we'd had a lot of success, it's like, so glad to have you guys here. But in the back of my mind, and I might have told them, before... The band got successful or before I was in a band. I sent a cassette to you. <laughs> I were, were never you... heard anything back. Now you're hailing us as Kings of Manchester. <laughs> 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 oh, strange. Were you ever the front man for your previous bands before Buzzcocks? Before the Buzzcocks, I, uh, I was just rehearsing with two guys around the corner. I was singing with a guy on bass. I was on guitar with a guy on bass and guys on another guitar. But we didn't have a drummer at the time, so uh, I was kind of writing songs and we'd do a couple of... Because the guy had uh, five strings on his guitar, like Keith, Keith Richards, I think we did um, we did Brown Sugar <laughs> and we did Paranoid Black Sabbath. But also we did that song I'm saying, Fast Cars, and a few others I was writing at the time. Because I wanted to form a band where you wrote your own songs, play three-and-a-half-minute songs, smash the equipment and tell the audience to fuck off. That was <laughs> <laughs> my kind of brief for it. And then, you know, with punk rock, it kind of turned out that kind of way, you know. I mean, it was, it was just a not worry about the audience, make a statement, really, that's all, you know. So I was doing that before I met the others with these other two guys, but I realised they really didn't mean it, you know. And... Uh, that's the only band I was in before Buscops. See, I didn't play the twos of all these pubs and different things. I didn't really want to do that, do covers up and down in social clubs and pubs and all this. That's a different mentality for me. I thought, those guys are good players, but they've got no consciousness. They don't know what they're doing there. They're just doing covers of people's songs, you know. Whereas I wouldn't have been a band that was original. Not to put those guys that do that down, but you say that Bow Bowie did uh, a wedding singing, didn't he, at one point? He probably did a few things. I mean, he had quite a few singles before he actually became a hit with anything, yeah. But he, he was also writing his own stuff all the, for most of the time, as well, I recall. Like he, he had a band called The Lower Third, and I think one called The K's or something like that. But it always seemed to me they was always writing their own stuff, you know. Sure, they did a cover or two in there, but he'll... They all seem to be writing their own stuff. 
And that's simply what I wanted to do, really, you know. Have a band that was original and write their own stuff and all their own songs, which guided it in a certain area. Luckily enough, that's what happened, you know. Buzz, um, Buzzcocks is kind of a name that rolls off the tongue. Like it, it's something that you can kind of it can get in your in your brain. You know, if people haven't heard of it, they it's it's a word that you know maybe some people who don't have the kind of colloquialism of of Manchester wouldn't know. But the the band's name Buzzcocks, the buzz is the excitement of playing on the stage. Cock is the Northern English thing being meaning friend. Did you did you yeah. have any other names at the time? Or was that that was the always the one that you were going for? It was just that one, really. It was uh, amazing enough. That there was a there was a review in the local paper for um, there was a, a TV program called Rock Follies, and it was about three girls trying to make it in a male dominated music industry. Funny enough, and the review in the local paper for it said uh, Rock Follies is on tonight. So I have a buzz hyphen Cox. We joined the words together, how buzz Cox, you know. That's how the name came about. And also, there's no such thing as a buzz Cox. So some people thought it was a strange bird or some kind of sexual vibrator. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they go, when is a buzz cock? You know? But then, if you think about Plato, the philosopher, he said, by giving something a name, therefore gives it a meaning. So we gave the band the name and we become the meaning of what a buzzcocks is, if you like, you know. We define what a buzzcocks is because there isn't, you know, there wasn't one before. So the buzzcocks is this band, you know. <laughs> um, and one of the one of the things I, I was reading just before I obviously speaking to you is that one of my favourite shows, and I, I get this is probably, you know, something that pissed you off at the time as well, but it's one of my favourite shows growing up was actually Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Did did you ever appear on that? And what did you think of that play on words with the band? I get that that you actually probably weren't you only supposed to, they were only supposed yeah. to do it for a pilot? Apparently I was told they was only doing it for a pilot, yeah. And um I mean, the original host, Mark Lamar, I knew him well and he was a big Buzzcocks fan. So it was kind of yeah, okay, do that. Uh, but Thought it was only for a couple of pilot shows, or you know, didn't realize it'd be on for about was on for about 15 years or more. <laughs> so, the original host we kind of thought fair enough, you know, but it's kind of nothing to do with us, really. You know, before it came out, people saying you got your own TV show, and it's like, not really, no, they've just used our name. <laughs> it's all right to watch, but it's not for me, you know. I refuse to go on there, you know. And you got no royalties. It's for comedians on the way up and for people that want to grasp a little last bit of fame on the way down for a lot of it, yeah. What I was doing, I never saw Bob Dylan or Joe Strummer on there or myself, you know. I didn't want to be tapping out songs on a game show for somebody. That wasn't really our business. Or not my business, that stuff, you know. Tapping out songs on a television show and pulling silly faces and stuff. It's a long way from what we were doing, basically. So you 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 were you on know, the front, front line of really. Okay, to use our name, but that's it. You know, we're not going to do it, really. You mentioned you mentioned about the touring component, and you mentioned Sex Pistols earlier, and it, it looks like you kind of made your the debut opening for the Sex Pistols in their second Manchester concert, nineteen seventy six. Were you supporting them, or were they supporting you? And what was it like, um, kind of playing with them? Yeah, we opened up for them. You know, 
because they was like the headliner. I think um, they was just getting a little bit known anyway. We opened up for them. Well, it was very exciting that night, you know, because when we played there, people were surprised that the Buscocks, because they'd never seen us, it was our first gig. So a lot of journalists it blew their minds, and it's like, wow, there's the Buscocks. And a lot of the audience who didn't know we was a local band. And then, of course, the Sex Pistols was on after us. So it was quite a powerful night and a game-changing thing in a lot of ways. You know, it was like, well, we've just seen this band of Buscocks and we've seen the Sex Pistols as well. Suddenly the whole world seemed to change, you know. Because nobody had kind of seen anything like it at that time, you know. It was all a bit progressive rock and stuff and like this was kind of like year zero you know people looked at that with shocked and thought what the fuck you know <laughs> this music going would see 90 mile an hour and it's cranking up there and the bands don't care whether they like them or not they're just delivering this stuff you know so it was quite exciting really. I always thought in some ways it must have been like when the birth of rock and roll started in the 50s you know but you know this was punk in the 70s it, there was a lot of excitement there, you know. So that was 76 and kind of Buzzcocks right. disbanded in 1981, took a took a break. Um, it kind of seems like a attributed mm. to, to kind of fatigue and partying, really. When you look back at it now, as uh, where you are, do, can you believe you had the stamina that you did in those five years or six years of partying? There was at least that or more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a non-stop party. I mean, you know, we was traveling around the world really you know going down america and all this stuff and europe and all around britain and everywhere like sound like partying and in between that we'd go in and do an album or a single so for five years it never seemed to stop you know but i kind of liked it i embraced it you know i, I, I always thought like the painter turned and he tied himself to the mast of his ship and went out to sea to get the real feeling of the sea before he painted it and uh, I always felt a bit like that, you know, tie yourself to the mass and go and experience the whole thing of this punk rock and roll. So there was a lot of partying, there was a lot of there was a lot of a lot of things, you know. Yeah. I, I, I like I like that. Things, I like that. Analogy. A lot of things you never thought you'd see, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things that would switch your sanity, you know. <laughs> did you did you say no to anything or was it just a case of just trying everything you can, like living in the moment? Yeah, trying everything you can living in the moment. Particularly when you're young in your twenties, if you don't do all that, then you know you won't be doing that at all. So I was open to everything, and I enjoyed everything with it. You know, got involved in it all. You know, sometimes it's not always good for you, but all a massive experience. And um, you know, the party really came because we worked hard on the songs. You'd kind of you'd have to write these songs, then we'd you know rehearse them and record them and stuff so there's all that and and then you was doing a lot of shows as well you know we do about 80 or 90 shows a year and like a very, very busy so when you got off the stage yeah, the release valve was to party on you know indulging a few drinks and other foods other <laughs> <laughs> bits and pieces <laughs> but it was just a fantastic time for all that you know? Yeah, it was an amazing time. You, you're doing the live gigs, the audience are loving it, and then you're partying with some of the audience in the hotels. And then the other side of it was you was writing songs and in the studio. So it was uh, 
I just thought it was an amazing cycle, all that. But but you have got to be strong, I think. Uh, it can take its soul on people, you know. And it probably did on us, like, say, after five years. <laughs> what's what's What was the longest binge that you had? Oh, I was up for 11 days once in America. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it myself, you know. I think I think um, I saw I in some Guinness Book of Records that someone died after ten days. So I think you've I think you've beaten the Guinness World Record. I had a little help <laughs> from my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was that that kept me going. You know, well, mainly was it kept me going, and I couldn't sleep. That's why I was. I wasn't trying to stay awake. I just couldn't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long, long time, yeah. Um, but like I say, I didn't intentionally mean to do that you know on average you'd party all night and then if he's lucky you'd go to hotel but you won't be up for too many days well you'd, you know try and get some rest depending <laughs> who was coming back with you to the bedroom the hotel and then well, and how many then it'd be out every day you know what I mean well it used to be like every night you know so like in America if you did two months like every night you seem to be having a party so that you can party sometimes you end up at people's houses and all over the place you know sometimes you'd be invited to a nightclub and next to me at somebody's house somewhere party. you know it went on for place so you know you could end up out all night but then you know that would happen the next day as well even if you said to yourself I'm going to take it easy tonight after the gig all of a sudden after the gig away you went again you know you might be in a different town and all happened again. So it used to happen every night. It's kind of like you came off the stage, you're still a bit live and you're pleased with the gig. And next minute, you know, you're having a drink, and that could lead you to all kinds of places. But it was all part of it, you know. It's like that Mickey Flanagan skit where uh, he says, you know, I only wanted to go out for one, and then he ends up in a club in his <laughs> yeah. slippers uh, with a pint of milk. Yeah, I know that feeling well. Even when I'm not in the band, if I got my local pub, it's, <laughs> that can happen. <laughs> um, like good. say, I've just come in for one or two, and suddenly exactly. you're there all night. You know? Exactly. <laughs> um, so according, according to the research you've kind of done, you've done ten studio albums, live albums five, compilation albums eleven, EPs ten, singles twenty six. What's what's been your favourite? Is there one that you feel like doesn't get the recognition it deserves? I like them all, really. They've all got their merits, you know. I can't highlight one better than the other, really, because there was all experience and all good in the wrong way. Even though some are not, might not be as good as others, they're still all part of the journey, you know. And once you've kind of done them, there's some great moments on them albums, and then there's some others where you think, oh, could be a little better. So I'm always liking the next album, you know. I mean, we, we had a new album out last year, Sonics and the Soul, which has been received very well. And that's the first album post-Pete, you know, which is kind of me mainly doing all the songs on him. And that's been received really well. So I was really pleased with that. But now I'm starting to write another new album. So that's what I'm looking for now, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I kind of wanted... once you've done these albums, they're there, but it, you know, it's like having a favorite child, it's very different. But they've all got the moments and things, that's why you make them, you know. 
I wanted to talk about that with Pete. Obviously, how was the transition as a guitarist to lead singer for you? Was it an easy one or? Yeah, because I'd been singing a lot of songs on the stage anyway. You know? So it's fairly easy. Anybody that saw us in the nights, particularly, would say I'd be singing about four or five songs, at least of my songs, and jumping about and waving a guitar, you know, actually, you know, performing or whatever. So it wasn't that difficult. Obviously, I missed him as a person. I missed him as my brother being on the stage. That was uh, very difficult, you know. It's like me and him were together for 43 years, so you kind of, when he's gone, it's like, oh, don't I'm used to that. Where's Pete? He's used to it every day, you know. But in terms of playing the guitar and singing and fronting it all, basically I've just moved from one side into the middle, you know. And I've taken other places now, you know. I kind of had to. and uh, But it's not been that difficult. Because like I said, I've been doing this a long time, even if, if I was at the side of the stage, now I'm in the middle. <laughs> There's that about it. But like I say, you know, I miss Pete as a personal friend or as a musician on the stage, you know, because the Buzzcocks was me and him on the way. Now, four years ago, we lost him. And there's nothing you can do. You can't bring him back. You can't do anything about it. You know, set mopes on all you like, but it won't change anything. I've had quite a few people dying. And I've been through all the pain with that. So it's like in the First World War. If a man goes down, you can't stop and help him. You might get stuck in the mud. You've got to carry on. <laughs> and that's what I've done. And that's why I wrote, well, I wrote a single, Got to Get Better Than Destination Zero, when we did our first tour without Pete, first tour with me fronting it, just pre-COVID. Then we had COVID, and during COVID time, I wrote Sonics in the Soul. And that came out about six months ago, something. So that's kind of where we're at with it now, really. So I've been excited about this one because it's relatively new, you know. And also, it's a big transition, you know. People have got to get used to the buzzcocks now. And um, we've been doing lots of gigs and they're loving it, you know. Yeah. It's got all the elements of buzzcocks, but I've just moved it on a little bit. I, saw, I did see know? a quote from you from an interview saying, you know, I don't want to hear people saying, oh, it's... It's not right without Pete Pete Shelley, and they said you're fucking telling me, man. Bring him back then if you if you can. Do you know what I mean? It's like it, it, you've well, yeah. you've got to kind of move on. Yeah, those people. Um, there was a few most most Buscombs fans said carry on, Steve, because they they realised the reality of it. Some other people, it won't be the same without Pete Shelley. I'm going. You're telling me, of course it won't. But that's what I'm saying. If you can bring it back, I'll be there tomorrow. But get real, man. You know, Pete Shelley's died. He's not coming back. And the Buzzcocks is what it is now, you know. And if you don't like it, don't fucking come. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, they, you know, you've got to touch. But, but don't go moaning to me about it's not the same. Like I don't know, you know what I mean? No, it won't be the same. It's like you're telling me, man. I know that. But what I can tell you is it's got all the elements of the sameness, but I've taken on somewhere else as well. Still just as good. The reviews of this album said it, it's as good as any album the Buzzcocks have ever done. That's how good this new album is. And the people that have heard it, all those doubters, it's changed their minds and blown their minds. And the people that come to the gigs, not expecting it to be as good, have been blown away. And we've been playing all year. 
have no doubt. So, so that's all good now. The the doubters have kind of gone now. Hopefully, you know, they know the deal. And it, you know, it's a bit naive of them to go and it's not the same. You know, we know it's not the same, but I think it's even better now, or it is what it is now. You know, I'm here to create the future. I'm not trying to recreate the past. I don't want to make a you know a new Buzzcock album sound like it was made like our first one or something. You know what I mean? There's no point in that. I want it still sound like the Buzzcocks, but keep pushing it forward like we always did. So it won't exactly sound like the reference singles going steady album or something else. You know, what's the point in making one of those kind of albums when we've already got one? Trying to recreate one of them. And I think some people get stuck in the idea of like, you know, that's how it should sound. But it's like, well, you've got that already. You've got the first album. You don't expect me, 20, 30 years on, to try and recreate an album that sounds like that one. There's no point in it. So once we get the head around that, then we can move on, you know what I mean? It's only a few people. Like I say most people have welcomed the album, the new album, and blown away. All those other ones, hopefully, have fallen by the wayside or fallen down a hole somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you can't please everybody, but... Um, I think most people have been pleasantly surprised with this album, and there's been a lot of support for the band. And also, they've been blown away live, so I can't ask for better than that at the moment, you know. It's, uh, that's been good, all that support. And um, and we've delivered the goods live and on record, so it's all kind of working, which is amazing, you know. So one of the things that you mentioned um, at the beginning there was the Scooters. Um, you know, I'm from Brighton, um, England. So yep. The Mods and Rockers was such a massive storyline growing up, maybe from Quadrophenia. But, you know, I remember my stepdad talking about that, you know, quite fondly. And I wonder, what was it like up north in those times? Because I only hear it from the kind of Brighton side of things. But what was it like up there? Well, yeah, it wasn't... Uh, I mean, really... It was all kind of based around that bright bank holiday, that the mods and rockers fighting on that bank holiday. It was in the newspapers. I think it happened once or twice in about 1965. And it was on all the television things. But it wasn't the same up north, really. And even I was too young to have a scooter when that was happening. I was 10 years old in 65. But a bit later on, by 1970, so about six years later, when I was like 15 or 16, then I... I had a scooter, and there was like another wave of kind of scooter boys and mods, you know. So it wasn't that initial. Actually, there wasn't as many, there wasn't like mods and rockers fighting the same way, you know. It was kind of a different thing. But uh, I had three scooters at the same time. I had one, and uh, a guy came and sold me another one, an LI-50, just like the one in Quadrophenia. And then a priest said, I see you have like scooters. I've got one in the church. Come and make me an offer. <laughs> so I, I bought a Vespa of him. So suddenly I had three within a few months, three, uh, three scooters, you know. So I, I kind of enjoyed it, traveling around them. I had one with a cut crawl, and one with a kind of racing seat on it, and I had a, a Vespa, you know. So that was my life for a while, you know, listening to soul music and the scooters. You you you're in you're in kind of London now. When did you when did you actually move down south? Over thirty over thirty years ago. I realise now that I've lived in London almost as long as I lived in 
Manchester. I've lived in the two places, you know. I mean, we used to come down to London to record the albums and stuff. But um, I moved here 30 odd years ago. So I've almost spent half my life in London, you know, the first half in Manchester. Which I didn't realise only up until about six months ago. I always thought I'd spent most of my time in Manchester growing up. And then I come to London kind of a few years ago, but it's almost half and half now, which is quite amazing. But um, I was kind of, I was born in Manchester and uh, I lived in Manchester until I was 37. So it did define me and uh, develop me as a, as a Mancunian, you know. And I'm glad for that. And then the second half of my life, I love London as well. London's a great place. So that's been my other half, yeah. What's what's the thing you miss the most about the 70s and 80s? Kind of like the 70s fashions, in a way. You know, the designs. You know, they have like orange and brown sofas and weird kind of paisley psychedelic wallpaper or something. <laughs> it was a lot of 70s things. And I like the music, really, as well. There was still got music in the 70s, you know. So that's all still there. I experienced that. It's just, you can't miss it completely, but, you know, it's there in your mind. If you've experienced it at the time, you kind of take it with you, really. I can remember them times, and I'm sure they do affect you, you know, all part of your socialisation of who you become, living through the 70s and through the 60s. So... There's a, you know, nostalgic way of looking at it, really. But I, uh, you don't anchor to back to being them times. But when you see certain things, say like, like the 70s or the 60s, like, oh, that's cool, you know. It is nice looking back or acquiring something that was like from the 60s or 70s, you know, to me, because those were like the highlight years when it was kind of impressionable for stuff. And it was all exciting times. So, but I don't particularly miss them, you know what I mean? You kind of just got to get over it. But there were great times. And sometimes in the 80s, you know, I would think that it was far better in the 60s and 70s than this mm. 80s business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mainly um, because of the rock and roll, really. You know, the music and stuff. You know, it all became electronic and we're we're coming to the end of the episode, um, Stephen. There's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. There's two in particular I can think of. The you toured with Nirvana, and I wondered, did you see something about them then? Did you did you kind of see that they they could that they were going to blow up to be this massive thing that they were? Um, yeah, well, it was there was pretty big when we was playing Boston in uh, in America, and um, we was on tour and. Um, we had a tour called the Trade Test Transmission Tour. And so we had all the, the, these televisions showing a collage of things on the screen. Now, after every show, I used to smash the televisions, the mic stand, kind of like a 60s pop art thing, like maybe the move would do or something, break a television. So I used to do that. And uh, So at the end of the show in Boston, I smashed the six televisions behind me, uh, I got off the stage and the tour manager, Nirvana, here to see you. Now, they was number one with Teen Spirit and the album Nevermind. Biggest band on the, in the world at that time. And then in walls got Kurt Cobain and, and, and Dave Grohl and Chris uh, Novoselic and stuff. They all came walking in. And the first thing Kurt said to me was, 
I love the way you smash the televisions, man. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we kind of had a chat about, um, I said, you've got a perfect there. And I've learned how to swing the mic stand at the television. So it hits it perfect in the middle, implodes, and the smoke comes out. And I said, if you clumsily hit the thing, the glass will break, but no smoke will come out. It'll just boring the shatter. But aim it right and hit that middle bit. It does implode, and you get dramatic effect. So he loved that, yeah. And he said, uh, I want to smash one television. I said, you're not live, man. I've been smashing thousands on this tour. <laughs> I'll show you how to do it. So, it, you know, it was a good conversation. That. And then we we joined them on their last tour when they, they said, will you come and do some shows with us? So we, we joined them uh, starting in Portugal. It was their last tour, actually. So we had a great time with them, you know. They'd be in our dressing room, we'd be in theirs. And I thought we were a great band. I mean, they loved the Buzzcocks as well. But you could tell they had something really special also, you know. There's a mutual exchange of loving each other's bands. And we did them shows, and then, of course, Kurt tried to kill himself, and then he, you know, days later, when he got back, he shot himself. But, um, you know, he was on that tour days before he killed, you know, before he went back to America and killed himself. You didn't see anything then about, it, like, that he, he was... He never... Um, we had a couple of up and down moments on the tour, but sometimes, you know, I used to speak more around these stadiums every day with him, eh? I'd sit on the bus with him while he'd sit on ice, you know. He liked the vocal on harmony in my head. And I told him I smoked about 20 cigarettes to get that rough sound, like Little Richard or something, or, you know, wherever we're at. And you can see his vocals are a bit like that, aren't you? you know. Here we are. So, he loved the vocal sound on harmony in my head, he said, yeah. And uh, I told him about the cigarettes and stuff. So we talk, you know, we talk about a few things, all kinds of different things, you know, each day on the tours. But there was no indication that he wanted to kill himself at that point, you know. I read books on suicide, and uh, if it's going to be premeditated, uh, people think about it for weeks. And they don't give any indication they're going to do it. You know, they don't say, I'm going to go to suicide next week. So whether he had that in his mind or not, I don't know. But um, it kind of seemed all right in that tour. I'd say he went up and down a little bit. You know, you have, on tour you have good days and some days you're a little bit, you know. But I just thought it was that, you know. But obviously, it was, you know, by the time he got back to uh, Seattle, he had a... Uh, other things on his mind. But on that tour, I uh, I couldn't, you know, there was no indication that he was going to kill himself. Um, and we had a great time with him. So it's a kind of past to, to, to kind of future now, which is this year. Mm. It looks like, you know, Iggy Pop's Dog Day Afternoon in London. Mm. Mm. You know, you've you've been down, Greeny Girls, Blondie, Generation Sex. <clears throat> How exciting is something like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm devastated that I live here and I can't actually be there for that. But, uh, you know, Iggy Pop, it, it just, how how great is that going to be just to kind of do a gig like that? I think it's going to be a great day. It's a great lineup. Great to be playing with Iggy, of course, as well. You know, and uh, we've got Brandy, Generation Sex and all that. That'd be eager. 
It's just going to be a powerful day, I think. I think it's just going to be one of them amazing days. You know, it's a great lineup. It's an open air thing. So hopefully it'll be a mind blowing day. Really. That's what I think it'll be, you know. So, um, yeah, looking forward to doing that. Yeah. Steve Diggle, um, really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak to us today and good luck with the upcoming tour. And really looking forward to seeing you venture out over to these shores at some stage or uh, I see you over there or whatever uh, but really looking forward to it well I don't know when it'll be but hopefully next year we can look to moving beyond Britain really but it has taken a while for a lot of bands and people you know but thank you anyway yeah all the best this podcast was edited by Podlike we provide expert audio and video production for podcasters and content creators Find out more at podlike.online.